Welcome to Brand and New, brought to you by the International Trademark Association. INTA is a global association representing more than 30,000 brand owners and professionals dedicated to supporting trademarks and related intellectual property to foster consumer trust, economic growth, and innovation. In this podcast series, every two weeks, host Audrey Dovey shares with you a new topic related to innovation and its impact for the legal world, with a special focus on intellectual property. My guest today is Eran Kana. Eran is a cybersecurity and intellectual property lawyer at the U.S. law firm Meslon LLP. His practice focuses on cybersecurity, privacy, as well as trademark, copyright, and patent law. He's also a research fellow at Stanford Law School Codex and serves as general counsel on the Minnesota Board of Directors of InfraGuard, a non-profit partnership between the FBI and the private sector to sustain cybersecurity best practices. It's a unique opportunity then to share his expertise and advice in a complex area where IP is everywhere. Iran, the concept of cybersecurity is a topic of interest for large companies and governments. Beyond what we read or hear almost every day in the news, what are the actual risks faced by companies and individuals? Well, I think that the risks are that uh, with everything being relying on computers these days, more and more things are becoming computerized. We see this in a uh, rapidly growing segment of the Internet of Things. So the more reliant we are on computers to store information and to process that information, we are more and more becoming vulnerable. So the risks that we have are increasing in magnitude. They're not decreasing. Also because of the fact that we have a situation where the devices we're using are for the most part insecure from design from, from the very beginning. Is there such a thing as cybersecurity law? And if so, what does it encompass? Well, cybersecurity law is, uh, it's, it's not a term that everybody agrees on. In my practice, it means everything that has to do with computers, everything that has to do with information and computers. So the two, the, the intersection of information and computers uh, really becomes what we talk about in cybersecurity law. It used to be way back, I think in the 90s, it was cybersecurity law was really uh, another term for internet law. Uh, but cybersecurity uh, law is a, uh, a very wide field that encompasses many, many different laws and uh, best practices, and, uh, regulations, and many different elements. But I think it's helpful for people that are not familiar with this to just understand it as being a, a legal uh, uh, an umbrella for many very various legal disciplines that have to do with uh, data security, privacy. Uh, in, in generally intellectual property. What are the legal and regulatory resources you use and the dynamic between all institutions and agencies producing them? It seems that it's a pretty complex ecosystem in the U.S. In the United States, there is no single uh, overarching cybersecurity law that you can point to and say, this is it. If you are practicing in the area of cybersecurity law, you need to be uh, very good at uh, 
piecing things together from many different sources uh, and understanding which sources are relevant in a particular situation, which may not be relevant in others. And I'll give you an example. In the United States, we have something called HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And uh, many people, have, even outside the United States, understand HIPAA. I do a lot of work with Israel, and in Israel, they, they understand HIPAA as well. And uh, it, it is a model even for some of the lawyers there to consider in terms of how they deal with uh, uh, health information. So HIPAA is one of those that if you have a situation where you are dealing with a uh, an entity that is covered by HIPAA, then you need to understand how HIPAA relates. Uh, other Laws, for example, Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, is not relevant to health information. It's relevant to financial information. And so you have these two big bodies of law that apply to different settings, but yet they have a key integration into the whole area of uh, what we call cybersecurity law. And aside from that, could you say a word about standards? We have uh, standards, uh, and I'm sure that your listeners are familiar with the ISO, maybe less familiar with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, what we call NIST. In the area of cybersecurity in the United States, NIST is a very powerful source of legal uh, frameworks because of its best practices recommendations. And then we have federal agencies, for example, the Federal Trade Commission, what we call the FTC that provides the most significant guidance on cybersecurity. And then there's others, for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC. And so there's a lot of different sources of law with respect to cybersecurity. In such ecosystem, it's fair to say that IP is everywhere, right? Oh, absolutely. IP is everywhere. I, every thought we have, if we write it down, it becomes subject to copyright. If we have, uh, you know, trademarks, we have uh, trade secrets. Uh, and, and I think going back to the, your first question, all of this IP that is being created every single second is all subject to being stored somewhere, either in a cloud environment or in uh, on a computer somewhere. And it's vulnerable to attack. There's very little IP anymore that doesn't exist, at least in one way, on a computer somewhere. You know, if it's a CAD design, a computer-aided diagram or a computer-aided drawing, uh, schematics for a network or on a computer somewhere. If it's a, a big contract that a company has, uh, it contains in, uh, trade secrets, uh, it's on a computer somewhere. The, uh, the evolution started when people started becoming more and more dependent on computers for being the repositories of information. So in, we talk about IP as being intellectual property, but the intellectual property really at the end of the day is really just a class of information. This information really at the end of the day really just resides on computers. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with data, there's all kinds of IP involved, and we can see IP and cybersecurity frequently together. They are both in play, just organically. Let's now take a look at the news. We hear a lot about security breaches affecting data rather than technology. Think Facebook or even Target. Do you consider, Iran, that cyber attacks are more a threat to data than technology itself? Or is it a distinction actually relevant in terms of risk and damages? 
Yeah, I agree that it, I think it's irrelevant to distinguish between them because the information re- resides on technology. And you're attacking the technology in order to attack the information. I think the distinction is not necessarily helpful. You know, if you're dealing with a contract, uh, you're, you're not making a distinction as a practical matter. You're not making a distinction between an attack on the data and an attack on the IT infrastructure. Usually the, the emphasis is on a compromise of the information. Uh, but if there's a compromise of the information, there has been a compromise of the technology because uh, a firewall protocol was defeated and things like that. And then, of course, there are some uh, cyber attacks that aim at, uh, you know, disabling the technology itself. Uh, for example, a DDoS attack, a, a distributed denial of service attack, uh, is one that aims to basically cripple the, the technology itself and, and disable its ability to process. Uh, but for the most part, there is no real need for lawyers to make a distinction between them. So the focus is definitely on data and particularly on their integrity and their availability. What are the biggest threats related to data today? I think that the number one threat that is uh, imposed on data today or is targets data is ransomware, which is basically a technique that uh, tricks a user into opening a file that contains uh, what we call malicious code. And that code goes into the uh, user's uh, computer environment and uh, locks out the access to that data and conditions the access to essentially paying a ransom that is usually almost always in the form of bitcoins because it's untraceable. The, what we call phishing exercises, and there's variants to phishing. Uh, there's, like, for example, spear phishing. There's all kinds of different variances, but what they share in common is that they aim to trick a user into clicking on a link or a attachment, which triggers the uh, the malicious code. Ransomware and and it's the, and the phishing that leads to ransomware, I think, is probably the most problematic challenge that companies face today and it's very expensive and it's not just expensive it can also cost people's lives when for example a ransomware attack is directed at a hospital or uh, or other health environment or at a military installation for example so th- th- there can be consequences that are go way beyond just an inconvenience factor in the examples you give Iran cybersecurity breaches seem to be caused most often by ill-intentioned individual hackers located in remote countries. However, in many cases, the risks rather lie with the company's own staff. And how can companies effectively protect themselves, including their rights, from the inside out without losing in flexibility and efficiency? This is an ongoing challenge for any company that uses computers, which is pretty much every business these days. Uh, And uh, there is no, there's no one thing that fixes it all. It requires a, uh, a good level of uh, diligence on the part of the many different elements of the company, like the human resources department, the legal department, the IT department. It, it, it requires uh, having the right tools that monitor behavior. It requires training of users uh, to uh, make sure that they understand what they are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. Uh, it requires training managers to be on the lookout for behavior that doesn't fit 
the right parameters of behavior that are suspicious. Yes, yeah, so there's not just one thing that solves the issues that companies face. The issue is that um, people change jobs, and so this is not something that you do once and you're, you're, you're done with it. Um, this, is, this requires ongoing diligence. What would be your recommendations to companies? Actually, most already have policies and procedures, but it's just one piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah, some companies trick themselves thinking that they have policies and that's enough. The, the reality, at least in the United States, is that most commercial contracts, uh, parties give the right to the other party, depending on their uh, role. Uh, one party has the right to audit the other party. And what they need to keep in mind is that if there's an audit, it's going to be looking at not just what's written in the policy, but how it's actually executed, how not just once, but how is it effectively executed over a period of time and years, you know, even major corporations, when they are uh, assessing really the supply chain, for example, when they're assessing the risks, uh, they want to know what are the suppliers actually doing, not what the suppliers would like to do. Uh, show us your security policy, your information security policy, your data policy, your uh, IT policy. Show us actually what you do do. Don't just tell us things that we want to hear because that's a danger for the, for the big company or the, you know, the party buying product from a supplier. Um, so the, having the policies themselves is, is just one little piece of the entire puzzle. The bigger picture here is what actually happens in practice with the, with the companies. Among the targets of cyber hacks, lawyers are prominent. Many already use cybersecurity solutions. In a context where files, case documents, and exchanges with clients are increasingly stored in the cloud, not on premises, what are the main cyber risks law firms must address, and what are your common sense recommendations and those that are critical to protect their information, but also their ethics and reputation? Well, law firms are no different than any other uh, company that uses information, except, for, of course, because we as lawyers have the uh, legally required uh, ethical requirement of uh, protecting uh, client secrets uh, and client information. The, the, the requirements are not absolute security, at least in the United States. The law does not require absolute security. It requires reasonable security. And of course, the devil is in the details, as we say. What does reasonable security mean? And that is uh, something that's very difficult to answer because not one answer fits every situation. Lawyers and law firms should be should be vigilant, I think, uh, as to what are best practices. They should be part of what we call information sharing organizations that share basically best practices. This is how you do things. Uh, and pay attention to the very same things that any other company that uses uh, computers does. You know, what are, are there any suspicious activities on the network, things that we didn't expect to happen and so forth. So law firms have to have the same best practices in place as are required. Do you have an example to share? Uh, there have there are many publications that are issued by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which I mentioned earlier, the NIST uh, standard that law firms can follow. Some law firms even go to the level of uh, getting ISO certified, and it's specifically the ISO 27001 standard. So there are certainly approaches within the legal community that recognize that they have to have at least the same best practices as other businesses that deal with sensitive information have in place. Mm -hmm. 
Lawyers are, of course, required to maintain the confidentiality of their clients' information, and their environment should also keep their integrity and availability. All of this fully applies to IP lawyers who can directly face cybersecurity issues. Do you have few illustrations in mind? Anytime somebody can go into your network and change your data without you knowing it, that's a big problem. And this is, again, not unique to IP lawyers, but I'll give you an example in the IP world. In trademarks, for example, if somebody went in and changed the dates of your trademark renewals, what would happen is that you wouldn't file your renewals on time and you could lose your trademarks as a, as a result. And the trademark office is not going to care necessarily that you know you had a hack in your system. That can be the scenario where somebody has access to a company's web-based trademark management tools and disrupts the whole process. The portfolio itself is one of the highest areas of vulnerability. So let's talk now about the solutions. The business of cybersecurity has boomed over the past couple of years. Do you see more cybersecurity solutions that you consider reliable? The innovation in cybersecurity really, I think... Uh, the promises there are related to artificial intelligence uh, and how that type of tool fits into the system and really relieves, helps relieve the burden from IT administrators and enables the IT administrators to more quickly react and respond to cybersecurity incidents. I think uh, the promise of artificial intelligence is only starting we will see very interesting and uh, powerful tools that will help monitor network activity and search for things and, and respond to events that are uh, what we consider irregular, what we call anomalies. We are just in the beginning of seeing what artificial intelligence can provide for us in monitoring of, uh, of, a, of a network security. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, what are the specific capabilities a law firm should look for in a cybersecurity solution? Companies that bring the expertise of being able to go into the dark web and find this information, I think that that is, uh, uh, has a very important uh, service in terms of helping maintain security overall. But the dark web is where the people who steal data, that's where they try to sell it. And they are looking for what's happening in the dark web with specificity, with focus on, on specific uh, companies that, which are their clients. So they, they're looking for uh, trigger words or things that are indicating that somebody is going to attack a specific client or that a specific client had a breach that they're not even aware of. Now, talking about clients, what should be their expectations toward lawyers? I think more and more clients are looking to lawyers to understand what are the details that you can put into a contract that make your contract a better one in, with respect to protecting uh, information security. If it's understanding the different standards, for example, we, we talked about NIST already. How do, how do you bring in the best practices that NIST uh, puts into place? How do you bring that into I contract. What is the best way to do that? And I think clients expect lawyers not to just give very high-level answers. I think that the expectation now is if you're in the cybersecurity world and you're negotiating an IT contract uh, or a, a contract that has um, elements of data security requirements, you are required to understand the nuances of what makes up a data security what, what, what elements of data security need to be put into a contract? Mm -hmm. 
So lawyers should not only be holistic practitioners, technologically savvy, they should be able to blend cybersecurity threats and practicing law. I guess it will be more and more crucial to go outside legal practice. You are involved in an information sharing organization called InfraGuard in the US. Could you tell us how it works? Yeah, so InfraGuard is a United States uh, information sharing organization. It's not an international uh, uh, group. It's a public-private cooperation between the public sector and the private sector. And the public sector side is the uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. And on the private sector, it's any really any, any business of any uh, size that uh, is interested in maintaining cybersecurity in the company. Um, and InfraGuard is uh, devoted to basically just sharing information, the best practices that make uh, a company's uh, cybersecurity practices be best practices and not just, uh, you know, minimal practices. Aaron, if you were to give our listeners one practical advice to make them more knowledgeable about the topic of this podcast, what would it be? I think that they need to look for as many resources as they can on the internet, uh, blogs, uh, especially you know, law review articles, uh, news, newspaper. Uh, there's, there's a lot of information out there, and it's just a matter of everybody becoming responsible for you know, building their own uh, library, so to speak, of resources that they uh, read basically every day. This is not something you do once in a while. If this is something you're interested in, uh, you need to be passionate about it in the sense of uh, reading about these uh, developments and reading about laws, what, what is happening, what kind of breaches are happening, what kind of risks are occurring. Uh, it's really a matter of building a repository of uh, sources, and there's many different tools. One tool that I really like is uh, it's called Flipboard. It's a, I think it's free. Uh, and it's just a way of organizing information from various different sources. But there's quite a few sources that are just not trustworthy. So it's a, one of the things that you need to kind of learn is what is trustworthy and what is not. Thanks, Iran. Thank you. My guest today was Iran Kana, IP and cybersecurity lawyer at the law firm Meslon LLP in the U.S. Thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in every two weeks on Tuesday for future episodes of Brand and New, a podcast from the International Trademark Association. If you liked this episode and think someone else would too, please share it. And to learn more about INTA, please visit INTA.org.